Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. We are going to jump into the episode with Dr. Michael Graham II here in a little bit. But before we do, we're going to take a quick pause, hit our sponsors, and we'll be right back. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to a hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A vet check pet urgent care center franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talked to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting to you, reach out and learn how you can own your own vet check pet urgent care center franchise today by visiting vetcheckforpets.com, which again is vetcheckforpets.com. All right. So as I mentioned in the intro, we are joined today by Dr. Michael Graham, who is the owner of Premier Veterinary Consultants, LLC, and a practicing veterinarian. Dr. Graham has his MBA from Loyola University, New Orleans. He has a unique combination of medical operations with business education. So I want to get into that a little bit. He's also working on creating positive, meaningful, impactful change in veterinary medicine. Dr. Graham, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. And I give you credit. And when we chatted the first time, it was all about utilizing and leveraging LinkedIn to build a network, which I've encouraged folks in this podcast within VetMed to leverage LinkedIn and use it. But it can be scamming. It can be annoying at times. And I get the same stuff. I'm sure as a lot of people do, that can be frustrating. We're like, yeah, this platform is no good. But if you can filter some of that, there's absolutely, I think, meaningful relationships, networking um, to be done. But I wanted to kind of start with your clinical journey because I think that'll set the foundation for a lot of what we'll talk about. Because you joined a large multi-location clinic upon graduation, had desires of practice ownership, and yeah, walk us through experiences and where you're at and how you ended up where you're at today. Yeah, sure. So I graduated from LSU Veterinary School in 2014. I was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, so I wasn't far away from home. And my wife, who we got married a week after graduation, she had some ties to New Orleans as well, even though she grew up in Lexington, Kentucky. She had ties to New Orleans as well. So I was actually already living here, working. So New Orleans, obviously being home for me, it was something she was very comfortable as far as a city to live in and potentially live in you know, for forever and start our family and things like that. But unfortunately, when I graduated, almost the complete opposite of the market today. There were basically almost no jobs to be found except for with one of the two big corporate practices at this time. All these other corporations, sure, they had a lot of them were maybe around and getting started as far as buying practices, but you didn't have 
let's just say I can easily name off five corporations now or consolidators now that own a hundred plus hospitals. And I think there was maybe two in 2014. That's just how quickly everything has changed. So anyway, the reason I bring that up is because I didn't want to work for a consolidator. I wanted to be in private practice and I knew I wanted to own my own practice. Some of that was largely because of, obviously, I understood that being a practice owner had a bigger financial upside than being a contractual veterinarian or working for one of the consolidators. And I also wanted the ability to be able to have a say in how things were run and how things were done. So long story short, a practice down the street from where I grew up and actually where I brought my first dog, which I didn't get till college. At the time, it was four locations. By the time I left there in 2020, it was five locations. It had 14 doctors at the time I joined. By the time I left, it was up to, it might have been less, it might have been 12, but double digits either way. You know, it was up to 19. And Obviously, I had a very strong desire to be there. Like I said, with my wife wanting to stay in New Orleans, I was born and raised in New Orleans. It was certainly a practice that I had aspirations to hopefully eventually, you know, they had a partner system for those doctors that did well and had an interest. The trend at the time in the practice was after a certain amount of time, you would normally be offered a seat at the ownership table. They didn't need anyone at the time. And they were fantastic mentors. And I was already working there for multiple months before I graduated, or not working, but spending all my time there because Louisiana has a weird law called preceptorship, where before you could practice on your own in Louisiana, you had to practice for eight weeks underneath a Louisiana licensed veterinarian. Or if you were moving from out of state, you had to have two plus years of continuous clinical practice skills. So before our plan was the only job I to go back. So the only job I could end up finding was for a corporate or uh, private practice was in a town in what called Shelbyville, Kentucky, which was about 45 minutes outside Lexington. So again, close to where some of my wife's family was. So we were trying to kind of be in Kentucky or Louisiana said we could be close to family. That was an important thing for us. So I was going there. It was a one doctor practice. I was going to make the second doctor. And just maybe the day before we actually had a moving company coming out to give us a quote on what it would take to move our house, this practice down the street, the local practice down the street offered me a position. Obviously, I was elated. I was extremely excited. I went home and told my wife she was excited, but she told me I got to unpack the house since she packed it all. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, it was fantastic. And I was there until March of 2020. The amount I learned as far as because of the breadth of cases I got to see and the diversity of cases I got to see was so much more than you would see in a typical practice. I mean, so much so that the owner of the practice in Shelbyville, when I called and had to discuss with him that, hey, this practice just offered me a position, and I was nervous to talk to him because 
I didn't want to feel like I was letting him down or anything. And he said, Michael, I'm so excited for you. You should definitely take that position because you're right out of school. The experience you get and the mentorship you get, it's so important. And you're going to get that much more of that at that practice than you will at my practice. So he was actually very excited for me. And we're still very, very, very close to this day. But so, like I said, yeah, I worked there until March of 2020. They ended up selling to a corporate consolidator, which obviously changed my potential to be a practice owner there. And again, I never wanted to work for one of the big consolidators. So that was part of the decision to move on and go look for other opportunities. So from January of 2018 to December of 2019, while I was working full-time, I would then go to MBA school three days a week from 6 p.m. to or 6.30 to basically 10 p.m. So that was a lot of long days, getting to work at 6.30, 7 a.m., and then getting home at 10. But I always had an interest in business. I considered going to MBA school at the same time I was considering about going to veterinary school. And ultimately, I decided on veterinary. And so it was something that was always in the back of my mind. And as I saw the industry changing, specifically as far as corporates, I knew that I needed something else to differentiate me from if I wanted to stand out. And obviously, with the main focus and the main advantage of these corporate consolidators is taking over the back office part or the business parts. And you got no education about that in veterinary school, none. LSU, we actually had a doctor who taught there in my class. Class 2014 was the last class that even got his elective had some business background. But other than that, you didn't get any training, you know, in how to run a practice or how to do accounting and et cetera. So whether I worked for one of the consolidators and I wanted to stand out for them or started my own practice, I knew the skills would be very valuable. And again, I had the previous interest. That's what pushed me to go to MBA school. So again, funny enough, my last day there was March 1st, 2020 and COVID. So everything kind of shut down. So my wife and I had plans for me to take like a month off anyway, because we hadn't really gone on except for one vacation. I worked a lot. I worked every Saturday from the time I graduated. So we were just going to take the time together. We had just had our second son. So we had a a three-week-old and a two-year-old. So we were going to take the time. COVID hit. So it actually ended up kind of working out. And what I did during, this is where I really started. What I did is I worked with an individual to help me learn more about looking for jobs. He was a more of a career coach or a career transition coach is more what he called himself. So it was the perfect time him and I met. And one of the important things he taught me about was networking and growing your network. And as I'd learned the first six years of practice was the veterinary world is a very small world. So that's what I did. After working with him for about four weeks and taking his advice and studying his, you know, he actually has a career transition manual, like a book that he has copyrighted and everything. I started doing that on LinkedIn. So 
that friend who was on that practice in Shelbyville, he owned a lot of other practices as well. He owned like 23 total. He had sold a few to consolidators and then was getting ready to sell like his last 10. So he connected me with one gentleman or two actually. And what I did is after getting to speak with each one of these individuals, I would ask them if they knew of anyone else that would be beneficial for me to meet and were they willing to introduce me to that person. And there wasn't one time, not one of those individuals didn't have someone else that they could recommend or something I had learned about them. And I asked them more specifically, well, do you know anyone else that can talk to me more in depth about that or something they had learned about me? And let's say when I asked that question, they were like, I think you really need to meet this individual. And so they would introduce us, make sure that that next individual was okay with them sharing their contact information with me. And that's what I did for all of the rest of 2020, basically. And then that was more direct. That was more straight phone call to phone call introductions. I could say person to person with person to person in quotes because no one was seeing each other face to face, but it was all text message and phone calls. It wasn't as much LinkedIn. Then I started focusing on the LinkedIn things as more because LinkedIn is a little less informal. And he taught me, this gentleman taught me, this career coach taught me how important networking was. And it has opened up a lot of opportunities for me, a lot that haven't necessarily worked out, but I still would have never come across those opportunities or have the type of reach that I have within the industry if I wouldn't have done that. Some examples would be job opportunities to like medical director type opportunities. And someone said, well, I know this gentleman, Michael, he would be really great for this job. Let's, here's his information, reach out to him. Or all the way to hearing about practices for sale and saying that person in particular is not interested in the purchase, but I do know someone that may be, here's his information. And I still keep in contact with all those references that I made. I try to, as much as I can, as life has gotten busier, that becomes more difficult. But it's been amazing. And even for me, all of them pretty much are older and have more experience than I do, whether it's in life or in the veterinary industry, et cetera. And all of them have been, always been very open to one of the most common things I always heard from them would be, if there's anything I can do to help please let me know. And so I hope as I continue with my career, that is something I want to return to any veterinarians younger than me or even older than me that I think I may be able to help is if there's anything I can do to help you. And most of the time that's going to have a positive impact on the industry as a whole. Because obviously if you think something's a bad idea, you may say, I don't necessarily think that's a great idea. But so I don't know that there's a lot I can do to help you, but I've never had that situation happen. So that's where I try to envision it is giving back what was given to me. And that, in my experience so far, 100% of the time is always something that's going to have a positive impact on the industry or on some individual, typically a veterinarian or a technician. So sure, if there's anything I can do to help, please let me know. And that's how I... Now, to put it all in a few sentences is I want to give back what was given to me. And through that, 
I believe I can make an impact or I hope I can make an impact on the industry, the veterinary industry as a whole, or the pet industry, even to make it more general. Yeah. A couple of different things there. The first is the fact that you reached back out to the owner in Shelbyville and let them know, hey, this isn't going to work out. This is why I got this other opportunity. And they were happy for you, which I think I had a conversation with Stacy Purcell, who is a recruiter. And it seems like today with so many openings, veterinarians obviously can kind of take their pick of where they want to go not always the best at handling different businesses or practices when they're not going to work there, just letting them know, like just leaving them out to dry because you mentioned it's a small industry. Totally is. And so reputation comes around where it might not be the way it is today. And so I think you doing that early on in your career obviously speaks to kind of character traits, but I think it's super important for people to remember, Hey, even if you talk to someone and you think, Hey, this is definitely not somewhere I want to be you got to treat it with respect and be genuine and open and not just kind of ghost someone. I hate when people do that. No one likes it if that they're in that situation. And so it's just not a professional thing to think about. The other thing I want to talk a little about, and you mentioned it a little bit, but when we chatted um, when we first met, you talked about the ability for younger veterinarians. They seem to be a little bit too timid at times and they don't really want to handle some of the more exotic or complex cases and they want to just do wellness stuff and they want to like refer things out. And you mentioned that for you, you got to handle all that stuff and it really helped you grow quickly. I would love to hear you kind of expound upon that a little bit. Sure. The first thing about quote unquote ghosting people, it's funny that you bring that up because it seems almost weekly. I'm seeing a new article written about that, whether it's in today's veterinary business or some other journal or some other hearing about it on other veterinary podcasts that I listen to. And I would encourage any employee or potential employee that's looking for a job to, by all means, don't do that. I know that if someone did that to me, it would leave a very sour taste in my mouth. And I think it's going to affect you affect them down the line as well, because you don't necessarily have to work. I haven't worked for any of those people I've met through networking, but I've asked a couple of them, would you be willing to give me a recommendation? And they said, absolutely, because they felt they just still knew me well enough, even though they had never seen me work in a day-to-day clinic practice. They felt they knew me well enough as a person to leave a referral. And I don't think you're going to get a lot of people. If you go someone and just stop answering them, they don't know you. And the last impression they had of you was, hey, we made you an offer for a contract and a job offer. And then you just stopped communicating with us. I would encourage anyone in the industry, especially new grads, that obviously this applies to them more than anything, to not do that. I'm sure it's overwhelming for these graduates with the demands and the number of jobs that are available to them and where did they want to go. And I didn't even know what veterinary recruiter existed when I came out of school. And now every all these corporate consolidators have veterinary recruiters and you have individual veterinary recruiters working for private practices because of the huge labor shortage. So your reputation is everything. So yeah, I would encourage anyone not to do that. And that again, that's going to be even more important, that's going to be your last impression that person has of you if you handle yourself that way. Getting to your second point about the specialization, it 100% benefited me. It was, again, the diversity and the extent of cases all the way from 
a number standpoint to difficulty standpoint that we experienced. And there were specialists around when I got out of school, but it wasn't, there wasn't as many, that's for sure. And the push client acceptance of recommending a specialist was typically to push back. They knew you, you were their neighborhood veterinarian. They knew you very well, especially if they trusted in you. And if there was anything you could do, they wanted you to do it because of the comfort level and a lot of it from a monetary standpoint as well. So it just gave me diversity, especially again, you know, the example I always give is splenectomies. I was four years out of school and couldn't count how many I had done. And I had classmates that still had never done a splenectomy. And from what I understand from veterinary students now, the ones I know and the ones I talk to is, and I think the schools, if this is true, it would be, it's a disservice to the students is more and more they're getting taught, well, this isn't something you should try to handle. You should just refer this to the specialists. Whereas there was very few cases that I can remember specifically in school where the instructor would tell us where it would only be one slide. It would be like, look, you need to know about this. But in general, that's going to be out of your scope of practice. And you should send this to a specialist. Whereas the conversations I'm having with students and then young veterinarians is, well, we didn't get taught very much about. We maybe had two slides in our PowerPoint on that and because we were told to refer it. And A, if they're not being taught about it in school, and B, if they're just being recommended to refer that, and they don't actually get to manage those cases, how are they going to build the confidence in themselves that they can do it? And I would say the most important thing, your first two years out of school and into practice, the most crucial thing is building confidence. Veterinary school teaches you your basics and teaches you how to learn. But in my opinion, you're going to learn a thousand times more in your first two years of practice than you learned in your four years of veterinary school. And that's why the number of cases and diversity of cases that young veterinarians see, I think, is so important into their growth. And I think that's why they're timid, because either they don't get taught about it or the other problem, and I see this myself in day-to-day, is I think some of it goes back to the way clientele are treating veterinarians now and that would make you nervous as well is if you mess up this person's going to report me to the board or they're going to write all these nasty things on the internet certainly the internet was around when I got out but it wasn't nearly as commonplace as it is now and that's very nerve-wracking it is crushing to any veterinarian who is just doing whatever they can to help that owner and that pet. And maybe it was bad luck. Maybe it was that the pet was brought in too late and there wasn't anything that the veterinarian could do to begin with. But then for someone to go online and to write something about you and any reviews I see that I had experience with, by no means was the whole story shared on that post by the owner. So people are not getting the real or the true picture, honest view of what really happened there. And a young veterinarian to have 
a review like that written about them would, I imagine, because I know for me, it would be just completely crushing to your confidence. And I've had people write pretty nasty things about me. It doesn't bother me nowadays, really, because I know the truth. But the first time it happened to me, by all means, it was completely crushing. My point being is it's just so much more commonplace now. I think it's occurring much more for these younger veterinarians than it did occur for me as far as those online reviews. So I think it's a combination of being given the confidence by mentors that they can handle these things and they can learn to do them and they'll be able to do it. And they'll each time they do it, they'll do it better to not to a little bit of maybe fear from circumstances outside of their control that would discourage them from taking that leap to, okay, yeah, I'm going to keep this case and I can manage it. Also goes back to, again, when I came out of school, the practice I was at, they were 24-7, 365. So I had the ability to hospitalize cases overnight on IV fluids and hourly medications. And if you don't work in a practice like that, or if there's less and less of those, unless you're in a specialty hospital, less and less general practices, I mean, that are offer that capability, then you're not even going to get exposed to it again, unless you're working in one of these specialty hospitals. So that was another huge reason, again, why that owner in Kentucky was like, told me, I'm so happy for you. You should take that job because you're going to learn more in your first year there than you would learn in your first few years here. And that was almost word for word what he said to me. So those opportunities, I think, obviously are less with more practices being daytime and there being less practices, general GPs that are 24-7 and offer those services. So some of it is out of their control as well. For sure. And I think you actually answered the follow-up question I was going to ask, which is, how do you think that that confidence gets built, which is like you need the support from the owner or another established veterinarian within that hospital that is kind of that mentor that help encourage you that you can take it on? Because the idea that you're going to fail and something bad's going to happen, yeah, it can be really difficult to come to terms with. But if you have the confidence like, hey, you can do this. Worst case scenario, we're here for you. We're going to make sure like everything gets handled, but we want you to do this because this is what you're here for, right? We don't want to have it where you're second tier, you don't get the hard stuff, you can't take this on because you never are going to learn through that. And I know learning through failure is hard in any profession, especially when it is life and death, like you would be dealing with. So makes it tricky. But I wanted to then kind of ask a little bit about some of the other roles within your experience, because when we talked, you mentioned the client experience and that you saw, even when you were younger, clients were switching to you. And this practice was very successful, it was around for a long time. And why was that? And did you get any sense of kind of why people were saying, hey, Dr. Graham, I want to see you? Maybe before they couldn't get in someone else, but you were available. And now it's like, nope, I want to see you. And making that a specific ask. Oh, that's a tough question. You put me on the spot a little bit. Some of it was definitely that the older veterinarians weren't as they should be. They weren't working as much. They were starting to take a step back. They were of the age that they didn't want to work six days, seven days a week, or they didn't want to take their emergency shifts. They did that for however many years before, usually 10 plus years. And now it was someone else's turn to do that. And that's how I viewed myself when I started working at that practice. Being a larger practice was 
they did this and this is what I'm going to have to do. And again, a lot of that was because I wanted to be a partner. I wanted to be an owner and I knew I was going to have to put in the same effort as they did to get where they were. If I wanted what they had and I wanted to be at the level of success they were, I needed to match, if not exceed the effort they put in. The only other thing that I saw personally was the practice was still 100% paper and wasn't like all, I mean, still my favorite quote I was ever told is we're a 1970s profession practicing in 2016. And I started developing ways that I handled cases or handled the client experience. And I focused all on the client experience. I started to realize more and more. And what I learned through veterinary school is a lot of times, if not the majority of the time, it's more about the client experience than necessarily the services provided. And if they're happy with the experience, they're even willing to pay more for it. So I focused a lot of my efforts and the way I trained my assistants on that. And I bring that up as a reason because I was told numerous times from other clients that, well, this doctor isn't here as much. So whereas an appointment with them may take an hour, an appointment with you takes 20 minutes. And they wanted the continuity of care. Again, they were like, especially with these older chronic patients that had chronic ailments, they don't like bouncing from veterinarian to veterinarian because they don't feel that they're getting the continuity of care. And or the comment I get all the time is, well, we're fluffy. You know, Dr. So-and-so has only seen fluffy one time. You don't have to go look through the whole medical record to know what's going on because you've been caring for fluffy for five years, every appointment I had. So I think it came down to what I focused on. The two things I focused on the most was client experience A and doing different things that I could control within my own clientele to make that experience better for them. What, uh, between the veterinary skills learned through going to LSU versus the MBA from Loyola, what did you see going through the MBA program that you're like, wow, this is super applicable to a high quality veterinary practice? And then I want to piggyback that on with another question of the idea of this like private versus corporate. Some people are saying everything's going to go to corporate. There's no private practice business model left. And then kind of your thoughts or feedback on that statement. Again, the biggest thing I learned in MBA school that I could apply to veterinary medicine was primarily in human resources and marketing. An example is most veterinary private practices, if they did any advertising at all, it was minimal, maybe 2% of their yearly budget. And what I learned in school is, and they relied more on word of mouth to bring in new patients. And what I learned is, and this again goes to marketing, was veterinary practices were just starting to use social media. Now it's more important advertising than billboards or yellow pages, which don't exist anymore, et cetera, was I could control, I could bring in more new clients every month by through marketing than I would ever bring in through word of mouth from other clients. Because again, clients were in my, the way I felt was before I went to school, they were not utilizing online reviews very much. They were not utilizing social media very much. And 
I saw that as what was up and coming and what the future was going to be. And now how many places or businesses do you go to, whether it's your doctor or a veterinarian that you don't get, you know, the bottom of your discharge paperwork doesn't say, we hope you had an experience, you know, great experience. If there's anything you didn't, please contact us. Please leave us a review here. Human medicine, they actually send you both electronic. If you don't respond to electronic paper reviews and all of those are entered and they use that data and information to change their plan or their standard operating procedures about, yeah, primarily I would say like standard operating procedures or use it to, hey, we got the most new clients through this Google ads or this Instagram post. This is where we're attracting the most new clients per month. So we're going to focus more of our efforts here and less of our efforts in this market or in this form of advertising. So what I learned is, again, in MBA school is I will use that word data, that I think so much of it is going to come down to data and dictating how the profession goes moving forward. And it's not to say that's different than a lot of other professions. The rest of my family is in human health care, and it's been being used for 10 years now. But it's just the way things have changed and the way the world is changing. And the biggest thing that, that affects that is technology. And so data, I mean, I have a saying that data is king. Companies buy other companies just to get their hands on that company's data, and they can build their business just through the data. So I think that segues into kind of the corporate idea, right, of being able to harness so many different locations and that information together to make driven decisions, right? To manage that more appropriately. Now, are there drawbacks to that? Absolutely. But I think that kind of ties in there. So do you think the opportunity for a private practice is getting good information out of your systems and being able to implement it based on what you're seeing, the true data being there? And I think the other thing you mentioned is the idea of making tweaks or changes from human healthcare, it's like kind of the voice of the client. Let them kind of guide you, but that it can also, you got to take it with a grain of salt. You can't just do everything that everyone says because you'll just be chasing everything. But yeah, I guess that as you were talking, that's kind of the way that I was interpreting that. So I just want to make sure I wasn't going off on the wrong tangent there. I think the difference is with a private practice is obviously you're going to have a much smaller sample size than a corporation with 250 practices. But I do think that is the biggest difference and why there was such a big corporate push is because, as you know, being in the finance sector, the pet industry was a very, very profitable. If not, people, I've read plenty of articles, will use the term recession proof for the pet industry. And so then you start seeing these big multiples for practices or food companies or pet service companies. And to me, that all comes from the data and what you can do with that data. And the problem with a private practice is going to be your sample size, right? Or as more services become available, I don't understand why a practice nowadays would even send out postcard reminders anymore, because how many clients still look at that postcard reminder and call and make their vaccine appointment based on that postcard? You're probably spending more money sending out those postcards than you're getting in the business, it'll drive up for you. At least nowadays, in my opinion. Again, technology and how it is affected and how it is changing our industry, in my opinion. So I don't think 
the entire industry will end up being corporately owned. You still have the smaller practices that the corporates, most corporates aren't interested in. You have plenty of different models. I've seen some very interesting models for corporations that are starting to buy one-man practices or two-man practices or those lower revenue practices. But the majority, at least, of the corporations that I know have certain standards of whether it be revenue or number of doctors that are the two most common I've heard that a practice has to meet for them to consider buying that practice. And it's no different, again, with the rest of my family being in human health care, it's no different than what happened in ophthalmology, dentistry. I saw it happen recently with gastroenterology, and it's just, we're just, the veterinary industry is just getting there. The biggest loss I think that's going to come with corporations is the personable touch. Again, I used the term earlier, your neighborhood veterinarian. That personable touch that I think is going to become less and less as it's more protocols and disappointments coming in this way. This is how it's treated. I fear that it may affect the level of medicine practiced in the long term for the pets because there are either certain ways veterinarians have to treat a case or they don't have the experience to treat a certain case. That's my biggest fear for corporations, but and I don't think the whole industry will end up changing, but I mean that's my fear for it. And what I the best thing I've seen though is how much corporations are now starting to focus on the mentorship for these young veterinarians and making sure that they have that again because it was it is so crucial to the development of each individual veterinarian in my opinion and you're starting to see a lot of them that are focused so much is focused on mentorship which i think is very very important and is something very good to see to help combat maybe that loss of personal touch that would come with just a a big well-oiled machine is you give those younger vet you help those younger veterinarians develop those skills that they might not have gotten the last four years to say and i don't know how many actual years i'm just again guesstimating but they're focusing on it and it's going to have it can have nothing but positive effects on the industry and the pets and the owners and the veterinarians everything all around all it can do is have positive effects so I know practice ownership was definitely something that was top of mind for you. So I guess one of the natural questions that someone listening would be, is that still the desire and what you're working towards? And if so, and you could create ideal practice, what would your vision be like? And I know that's super open-ended. I know you don't have all day, but if you could kind of describe what that would look like based on your conversations, both within seeing it from a corporate side and having a lot of conversations there, working and living it on the private practice side, some of the stuff that you've done, and we didn't even get into this yet, but like ER and urgent care and some of that other, just you have a lot of, I think, well-rounded views within vet med of like different operating styles, pair that with the business knowledge. How would you build an ideal practice? The first thing I would recommend is wherever you decide to open that practice, so whether that location is you have to do your homework on the clientele that you're going to be providing services to. I think the world of being a general practitioner and doing everything is becoming less and less, especially with obviously every veterinarian is going to or should practice, should be able to give vaccines and know how to give vaccines. But if you're 
in a lower income area. You don't need to spend your money on a ultrasound machine, on a $100,000 ultrasound machine, because if it's not going to pay for itself, then you don't need to offer that service. I see a big push coming for urgent cares again. And a lot of that comes from our personal experience with human urgent cares and how much that plays a part in patient, human patient health care today. I mean, more people go to an urgent care than before going to an ER room and things such as that. And the urgent cares don't have to be doing splenectomies, blood transfusions, 24-hour care. You can pick when you want that urgent care, when you want your urgent care to be open. Be very specific in the services you want to provide. And again, this goes back to just if you wanted to open a general practice, be very specific, or at least in the beginning for a GP, be very specific in the services you want to provide. Decide before you open your doors what you want to handle and what you don't want to handle. I guess the biggest thing goes back to, I don't see many GPs offering that 24-hour service anymore. I think that's going to go more to specialist ER-specific facilities. And then there's a niche in there to fill in between a general practitioner closing and late at night and urgent care model would be to be open from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. And you handle the basic vomiting and diarrhea dogs, simple lacerations, ear infections that the dog's in pain and the owners don't want to wait till tomorrow to call their veterinarian. Or what I see a lot still being at the practice I'm doing relief work at is they call their regular veterinarian, but they can't get an appointment for an ear infection for three weeks. And they don't want to wait three weeks because the dog is in pain. So they're coming to me in the middle of the day on ER because I'm willing to squeeze them in and see them. So I think that's it's going to become more and more specialized and niche oriented, again, like the human medicine, I think. And part of it is good because now that we have all these different specialty colleges is we are able to provide a higher level of care. And I have seen a huge rise in the level of care provided to animals and an owner's acceptance of that level of care. Specifically, I'm thinking of dentistry as a perfect example of when I first started practice in 2014 and we were trying to really encourage oral care and dental care. The owners who were much older than me would laugh at me in my face, be like, what? You want me to pay? And even at the time, you know, it was like $175 for a dental. You want me to pay $175 to have my dog's teeth cleaned or my cat's teeth cleaned? You must be crazy. Because that wasn't a focus of patient care 15 years ago or 20 years ago. But now, owners, it's much easier to get pet owners nowadays. They understand why it's important. And the best way I equate it, the phrase I use all the time is when they ask me about, well, why do I need to get their teeth cleaned? And I say, well, how you and I go to the dentist twice a year to get our scaling and polishing. I was like, dogs and cats, they need the same thing too. And I explained to them, it's just improving the level of care that we are providing to them, which is improving their quality of life. And in my personal experience, I've never read studies on this or anything, but extending their life as well. So I would say dentistry and things like blood work, like running blood work on all animals once a year 
and not just when they come in very sick or when they get to a certain age, running it twice a year to start looking for liver disease, kidney disease, these things that we know occur more commonly as the pets become older. And again, that's just increasing the quality of care for the pets, which does nothing but benefit them and benefits their owners as well. Absolutely. So this is one, and I know you've listened to the podcast and I'll always ask guests as we kind of wrap up, if they have a question for me and it can be anything. So you can ask anything personal, professional, off the wall. I've been asked all kinds of fun, wild questions or stuff that's pretty straightforward. Is there any question top of mind you want to pose back to me or anything you want to share or have a moment just to go into that we haven't covered yet? This goes along, I think, with what you do as a profession is I would encourage young veterinarians to prepare, especially as the level of debt and things are going up to prepare themselves and to utilize the resources that are starting to be provided to them or resources like you to plan for the future and to always make sure you are keep yourself in mind and to make sure you're taking the proper steps to protect yourself. And if you're married and you plan on having kids to protect your family and protect your kids in the future. Part of when I would talk to other co-vet co-workers or other veterinarians and told them that I set up a retirement account when I was in college and had life insurance as soon as before I graduated. Those thoughts had never taught their mind. I had never crossed, excuse me, I never crossed their mind, but they also were never taught about those. I was fortunate again in the people, the mentors and things that I had to think about those things. So I would say to utilize, and I think that's another great thing that the corporates are doing is there's more access for veterinarians to those services through these corporations. So that's another benefit of them. But I would say to, we do so much to help everyone. We as veterinarians do so much to help the pets and help the owners to not forget to make sure to help yourself and take care of yourself. Because as we're seeing right now in the industry, burnout and the labor shortage and unfortunately the rise in suicide rates, it's a very real thing. And that's why I think the self-care is as important. And that goes from taking vacations to considering buying life insurance in case something happens. Sure. Yeah. It's great. Great feedback. Great advice. And I know it can get tricky when you're like, hey, I have all this debt. How do I afford these? It's just like trying to prioritize and whoops, make sure that you yeah, are a little selfish and that's okay, right? To be a little selfish, take care of yourself because you can't have a long lasting career if you burn out and you're only there for a quick spell. So I want to wrap up for those interested in connecting with you. We've kind of talked about LinkedIn, but is there any other area and I'll connect to your LinkedIn in the show notes that you would send people or how should they reach out to you to, to chat if they have questions, want to get to know you a little bit better, chat more on these topics? I would say the easiest way to get in touch with me is via my LinkedIn. So clicking on that link in your notes and I check it daily, if not multiple times a day. I respond to private messages that are sent to me, even from people I've never met before. And so I'm more than happy to connect with anyone, to chat with anyone. If you want to chat and we want to continue that conversation via email or phone call, then just let me know that. And the message, please. And I'm happy to share that information with you. But that would be the best way without me giving out my personal email on the podcast. So yeah, as you say, give one filter level, because I've had people like my phone number, this and that. I'm like, 
I don't know if I would give it out on podcast, but it's like, you do whatever you want. <laughs> of course, to each his own, but no. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, man, no, I'm not giving out my phone number, not giving out my personal email, but I check LinkedIn plenty enough and I'm not going to decline anyone or not respond to that message. So, Yeah, thank you for the time. I know our conversation kind of went in a lot of different directions, but your experience, your thoughts, I think are unique in veterinary medicine. And I wanted to have you on and I'm glad this worked out. So thank you for the time and, and sharing your thoughts and feedback and knowledge and wisdom. No, thank you for having me. And I'm flattered that you even asked me. And again, whatever I can do to hopefully help another veterinarian, which is only going to help the industry or someone in the pet, someone doesn't even have to be a veterinarian, someone in the pet industry that has a passion for it, then I'm more than happy to do it. So. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.